clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. I'm Sam Weinman. I'm Jordan Cruciola. You're listening to Ots Cheerion. Welcome, friends. Today, mm-hmm. we have something very special to talk about. <laughs> I, this is, you know, <laughs> honestly, every day is a special day here on the Ots Cheerion podcast, as you well know by now. But, like, the, I just want to say that right before we hit record on this, Sam was telling me how excited and how much he had to say about the movie that we are going to get into today on Otsiri on the podcast, where we dissect uh, millennium era horror movies. So Sam, what is it that has you so excited to talk the about today? I want to skip over everything and just get into it. <laughs> this is why, friends. Well, this is what I wanted. What I wanted. What makes today so special? Mm. Because most of the horror podcasts in your feed, because let's face it, you listen to five or six of them. Absolutely. You know, and you're going to listen to the hosts read the Wikipedia five minutes before, mm-hmm. go through their talking points about, you know, how much it grossed, what it failed, why it shouldn't have failed, and then who the stars are. That is not what you get when you listen to Odds Terry. That is not. Because today, you are going to get a pop cultural map of the end of the odds. Oh, and you're I right. You're right. Wait that's to a guide very, you through it. That's a very important thing to say is this movie coming in 2011. This is one of our tail end. This is our, one of our tailies. This is one of our on the fumes of the odds coming in to like, you know, on, on just feeding off of what has come before and, and being kind of a, a facsimile of it, but, but missing, having missed its heyday, having missed its heyday to thrive as it should have. It's like, you know, when you're like on a road trip and you're pushing it because you don't want to pay extra for gas and you feel that little rumble in your gas tank and you're like, fuck, I'm just going to keep going. That's the roommate. <laughs> yes. And, and you just pray to God you hit a hill. Yeah. You know? yeah that and you can downhill coast the rest of the way. I think to fully unpack exactly what this movie means in this moment mm-hmm. is to also understand its failure. Um, yes. But before we do, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about who's in it because that gives so the clues as to where we are. Yes. Oh my God. We have- The people in this movie are a roadmap to this movie. The people of this movie are are collectively like, I mean, it really is the the tops of the tops as far as odd standouts go. It, it, we have it, Leighton This Meester, is not wrong. Yeah. Leighton Meester, Gossip Girl. Mm-hmm. Um. But also, fresh off the tale of Good Girls Go Bad, mm-hmm. a huge hit single in 2009 released by Cobra Starship. She was the guest vocalist. Um, I listen to that song and I just replay her like 30 seconds over and over again. She is a damn you, good hook on that song. Quote any of that? I mean, it can play under us <laughs> while we're talking. Like, of course, yes! we will hear Layton's voice serenading us as we as we discuss Wait, okay. Cobra Starship. So we have her coming. So this is, this is, we have Leighton Meester. We have, uh, at, Mink- well, how, okay. We have Minka Kelly. We have Minka Kelly coming off the triumph of Friday Night Lights being, as, being just every bit as beautiful and vulnerable looking as Lila Garrity ever was on that show. So we have our dual, we have our single white female set of Leighton Meester and Minka Kelly. And then we have her, uh, by the way, how did you know exactly what I needed help with? Friday Night Lights is like a black <laughs> hole for me. It's yeah. like, if you have, if there is a football on your poster, I don't know what's in it. I don't know what that show's about. Then I, That's a shame that you missed, I feel like, of some seminal gay, some seminal gay moments for you in like Varsity Blues. Listen, I know that I did. Okay. I know that I did. Like, and that's why, <laughs> that's why I have friends like you in my life to help. 
Yes, I So will. then we have Ali of Ali and AJ. Yep, Ali Machalka. Ali Machalka. Ali Machalka. She is she is giving uh she who won what scene stealer for this? Was that what or was nominated for a scene stealer? For I both believe, the, or nominated for both this and Easy A. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think that was that this was coming in conjunction with Easy A. And you know what? Ali Machalka is one of the great scene stealers of the 2000s. Even though there are not nearly she didn't get nearly enough opportunities to do so. Ali Machalka doesn't need much screen time as a cumulative over the course of a decade to prove to you that she is a scene stealing MVP. Absolutely. And then to just finish it off, we have uh, Cam, what's his last name? Gigande. Gigande. Cam Gigande. Yeah. Uh, uh, the villain in Never Back Down. Did you see that <laughs> three times in theaters? I did. <laughs> I haven't seen it three, I didn't see it three times in theaters, but I have seen it more than three times since then on my home entertainment devices. Uh, and, and I know that's not his biggest work because we're, I'm skipping over Plush. Also, nobody's seen this. Plush, right. a, uh, a, like one, another bi-erotic thriller. Yes. Uh, and then- Starring the beguiling Emily Browning. And then we have Billy Zane as the pedo oh teacher. God. We do. We, re- we have Billy Zane leaning into his like, I'm getting a little older and I have a really scary voice when I inflect it in certain ways and my dark eyebrows go from sexy to terrifying when I'm like leching on young girls in my entry level art class at a university. University of LA, shouts out ULA. Because this class will make you understand that you're aspiring to do something great, to emulate the likes of Mark Jacobs, Vera Wang, Rick Owens, perhaps even surpass them. What you create? Can you imagine that being your like throne? <laughs> You're an entry level art teacher at ULA, and you are you are acting like you are hot shit, and you are telling like I go to Paris Fashion Week every year. It's like you're teaching 100 level whatever this is at ULA. So like, I, forgive me if you've been, if you're a little demystified from me from the start, Billy Zane. If Emily Blunt isn't your assistant, I don't care that you're going to Paris. <laughs> yeah. So the cultural roadmap that I want to speak about is when we look at uh, Good Girls Go Bad, which is the end of the odds, it's 2009, mm-hmm. um, and then, and that's a huge hit. Then we see uh, Late Meester try and launch her, uh, her solo career. So what we have is December of 2009, Somebody to Love, featuring Robin Thicke. I actually forgot it was really Robin Thicke. I was explaining it to my boyfriend the other day, and I was like, oh, it's like some dude that sounds like Robin Thicke. And then he's like, <laughs> oh, no, that's because it is Robin Thicke. And so you've got a song where uh, Leighton just lists things. Yes, the song the where she song. just lists, lists things, yes. yes. Super odds. In the odds, <laughs> yeah. especially the tail end of the odds, we had female vocalists mm-hmm. who would talk, sing, lists of uh, uh, things that were sexy, places yeah. they wanted to go. I mean, when did uh, Britney's when would, did Britney's, would, wouldn't do? What did when did Britney's outrageous come out? Outrageous was oh god! I mean, that was the early end of it because that's like uh, that's on the In the Zone album, girl. I mean, so, that's toxic era Britney. Like what you're like so like what you like that is the odds. I mean, we even wow, have the Princess yeah. of Pop herself being outrageous. My sex appeal, outrageous. We have, and then that carries on into Ashley Simpson, mid 2000s with uh-huh. La La, because uh-huh. it, you make me want a La La, which is essentially a fill in the blank. Yeah. Uh, she wants to dress like a maid. She wants to throw a football. You know what I mean? She, yeah. she wants to do all sorts of things, which also comes back to today, this pop mm-hmm. cultural moment from Schitt's Creek, where we mm-hmm. have uh, a little bit of Lexus, which is uh, lampooning 
all of these songs. So Leighton Meester is, is the A Little Bit Alexis of 2009. <laughs> and it, it failed, my friends. Um, now, it didn't in my iPod. Right, right, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I couldn't get enough In your personal billboard garbage. chart, it was topping. It, it, it was nonstop. But where that, colli- where that uh, collides with Allie and AJ is important. These two titans of crossover media, mm-hmm. also another, you know, aughts thing, these crossover women, mm-hmm. and they're, they're coming together for this. So when we see Allie now, mm-hmm. we know Allie, but at the time, Allie was kind of a fringe pop character. Yes, yes. She was, she was definitely, she was a supporting act. She was a supporting act, for sure. And Leighton, she was a, she was the verse in somebody else's song that was yes. big. She was the Blair to Blake Lively Serena. Now, even though- Even though she is the, the break, even though she is the runaway star in a sense, she is introduced, and we are introduced with the anchor of Serena Vander Woodson being our reason for being within the Gossip Girl universe. Yes. And the last tiny, tiny detail that I think illustrates this perfectly is Hellcats. So mm. for those of you who don't know, Hellcats is, a, uh, is one of the greatest TV shows of the aughts. Mm. And I don't want to say of all time because <laughs> I, can't, I, I haven't seen every TV show. <laughs> what I will tell you is that in September of 2009, Hellcats came out. It starred Allie mm-hmm. and it starred Ashley Tisdale. Ashley that's Tisdale, their- that's right. That's right. They're two fucking leads, Ashley Tisdale coming off of High School Musical. So you have these women who are, you know, titans of their pop fields yes. on this show that, that, that apparently was so popular. Like the ratings were the highest ratings any slot after America's Next Top Model had ever had. And if you were gay wow. in fucking 2009, you watched <laughs> ANTM and Hellcats. <laughs> So they did like a full I, series. I'm sorry, order. Sam. I watched ANTM and The Beautiful Life colon TBL starring Misha Barton. Okay, that's fair. For the that's, three episodes I, I that it was on television. Wow. <laughs> yes. They even gave what it to you in the title. About? It was about Misha, Misha, Misha Barton played a runway, a run aging, essentially runway model who the up-and-comer, played by Sarah Paxton, was like her new competition, but Sarah Paxton didn't see her as competition, but Misha did, because Misha's the one on the way out and she's the one on the way in, and it was basically CW Neon Demon. The world of high fashion. Try not to make any celebrity eye contact. You're tripping with Jimmy Choo's. Where glamour and drama. We have a problem. Break a heel. Unfold on the cat. And they give it to you in the title. Oh. It is called The Beautiful Life, colon, TBL. It, I truly think it got three episodes before it was pulled. I, it did not, if it, it, the farthest it may have gotten was a mid-season finale, and then they did not renew. This if show we don't do a mini so for this, I am quitting the show. <laughs> yeah. we, I, I need mean, to see that. Yeah, I mean, there's only enough material to support a mini so that sounds perfect. So uh, Hellcats, produced by Tom Welling, what? Gonna keep moving. Is <laughs> this runaway success. And so- until it's not. Mm-hmm, at the, mm-hmm. at, in May of 2011, it's canceled. Okay. And so after its first season, that's actually it. And that is the end of the aughts for me. Now, you're right in mm-hmm. saying that in 2013, mm-hmm. we do have a return to the aughts aesthetic and horror. I think we But do. I think that the death of Hellcats is actually how you can mark the very end of the decade. Well, and I think here's a very important thing that I, I, I'm sure of this, I don't, I, again, I don't think I know. Um, a very important thing about this specific conversation with the, that we are having about this being writing on the fumes of the 2000s and how 
it couldn't, it wasn't going to find its audience like it needed to because we had hit sort of a saturation point with what this movie was doing. We didn't really want to do that anymore. We had moved into a universe where essentially James Wan and Lee Wanell had reinvented horror when they came in in 2003 with Saw. Yes. And so, but, and then they did it again. James Wan and Lee Wanell, like we don't really talk enough about like the sort of combined 15 years of dominance that these men uh, like presided over in horror because when we're coming out of the torture phase the supernatural wave that comes in around 2010 is really is really condensed into its into sort of its classiest form to that point in a popular sense in insidious and then it is refined even further with the conjuring so we can talk about whatever else comes after with like the rest of the Conjuring verse and Lee Wanell breaking off into his own very successful uh, directing career, writing directing career. Um, but they're like the these guys are sort of the architects of mainstream horror of of its tone of the day. So what we are seeing here with the end of the aughts, though, and we're talking about Minka and we're talking about Layton, two of, if not the two, if not the two biggest youth shows. Yep. Of the aughts are Gossip Girl and Friday Night Lights. Like, you have Prestige TV going off with, like, The Sopranos and Mad Men, and, and that is, like, that, that's a separate segment of TV. What we're talking about here in, forms, in terms of, like, zeitgeisty youth wave television a la 90210, all of the OC, a la currently Riverdale, the shows are Gossip Girl and Friday Night Lights. And who do you have in this movie? You have Leighton Meester... Gossip Girl is going to end in 2012. So Leighton is looking forward to next steps as she's doing The Roommate. Like, this is a, this is a good deal for me. This is a meaty role. This is some single white female stuff. This is, some, this is some Jennifer Jason Lee, like, psychosexual crazy. And then you've got Minka Kelly, who the finale of Friday Night Lights is in 2011. So this movie arrives at the conclusion of the two biggest shows defining, like, the pop TV sensibility of the aughts. And as it is ending, this movie is served up a little bit too late to be appreciated on its own terms and on its merits. So you really have like, you're right. Like this is, this is very much giving us like crystallizing the end of an era and seeing why something didn't necessarily pop because that bubble, that, that, that bubble had already, it, it, had, it had burst, it had deflated. And we were moving into something new. We were moving into the 2010s, which is why, which is, is further evidence why something like a Texas Chainsaw 3D kind of felt anachronistic in its time. Stan it as I do. It does feel such like an artifact of the 2000s, which makes yes. it an even weirder thing to see in 2013 because we are even further removed than something like The Roommate is. So yes, I think you are, you are, dead on in your assessment with this this movie is like a tablet decoding the very end of the 2000s when we were watching this this was another uh uh staging for a movie night the roommate recently which was uh, we knew we were going to talk about this movie but it was what what made us know we had to talk about it right now and, and schedule schedule this conversation soon no way as we were getting toward the end of the movie you you said you were like I, you said something like, I, I liked this when it came out, but I thought, I thought I liked it because it was bad, but actually I liked this because it was really good. Like you seem to have, you seem to have come around like, oh, I thought I was celebrating like just total trash here, but actually what I was celebrating was a good movie that was, that was discounted as trash. Why, what, um, what solidified your thoughts on that to come around in that way, Sam? 
I can only look back and look at that pop cultural roadmap, uh, roadmap and see the the total and complete saturation of the marketing type, like the way this movie was marketed. Mm-hmm. It was marketed as just like that sleek CW kind of movie yeah. where it felt like it was something that was probably thrown together. The reviews, by the way, 13% of Rotten Tomatoes, fuck that. Yeah. The reviews are, are something along the lines of like, this is just derivative of single white female, et cetera, et cetera. And I will say this, at the time I was like, okay, so it's single white female, the remix, yeah. Um, but it's not called single white female and they didn't get the credit. So this is like Nosferatu was to Dracula, yes. right? Like, and yes. Bram Stoker's widow is over here suing. Yeah. But like, <laughs> the thing is, Nosferatu is still fucking good. Yeah, the, the bottom and line of that conversation is Nosferatu is in the Cinema Hall of Fame. The why we don't talk about the roommate and the way that it yes ands single white female the way that it takes those beats and actually does them a little bit better sometimes now that astounds me and I think I truly think it's because of and I don't want to Jennifer's body this but it, mm-hmm. it the way that this film was marketed really did it a disservice mm-hmm. and and leaning into a cast when we were tired yeah. of that kind of uh that kind of machine yeah. Uh, culturally, meant that we weren't really excited when we sat down for it. We were maybe yeah. picking it up on Redbox. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very that's very true. And I think, like, the, the issue I have around, like, oh, well, it's just single white female. It's like, yeah, but this is horror. It is a genre of remix. It is a genre of repurposing. <clears throat> There's nothing, like, of course, it's the trope of the, like, toxic female friendship it's another toxic female friendship for me the idea of something being another single white female I love so many permutations of single white female I I give me give me the conventions that I that are familiar to me that I already enjoy but execute them in a good way and of course I'm gonna show up for that and of course I'm gonna like it the idea of like saying like oh well x slasher movie is just halloween it's like yeah they're all fucking halloween blah 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 end of the day they're all halloween but like and halloween's fucking black christmas so y'all can (laughs) suck it so you all can suck it because it's just the it's just the format itself being twisted about turned around shaved down in certain parts made sharper in others that's all it is it's just a cocktail that you're mixing with slight variations over and over again but guess what they're still gonna get you fucking hammered you're gonna have a good time by talking about this movie like it is the dollar bin version of something else, yeah, is is to uh, is to completely overlook the incredible performances by the leads. The Honestly. I think masterful directing when it comes to the scares, and I'm gonna say, and we will get there, but like the violence itself is a scare mm-hmm. at the end of a decade when violence itself uh, had been had become just a part of the fabric of horror. Yeah. So going from torture porn to this, maybe those things didn't read as well, but I can tell you in 2020, watching Allie get her fucking uh, belly button ring ripped out, yes. I felt that. It was horror. And it, I think it's really, as I expressed on the chat when this was movie nighting, um, I think it's really appropriate that I come clean and say that if I had, you know, there's a lot of like, I, I, I'll admit it, in the horror villain edit version of Jordan Cruciola, there's a lot of it me in Leighton Meester's character in The Roommate. You know, tonight Tracy had her shot. Tomorrow you're all mine. I want to show you the big city the right way. And I promise I won't abandon you. I was like, you know what? If I was, a, if everything about me was turned sinister and bad, I would absolutely be Leighton Meester's creepy ass character in this movie. And the fact that I'm feeling a realistic resonance of like what you take with the, with like 
traits that are generally positive and, and mean well and altruistic, and then you turn those things negative and dark and frightening, it actually didn't feel, it didn't strain credulity for me that a person would be this troubled. I mean, this movie where it loses a lot of points is it's like vilify, it's, it's vilifying of mental illness. That is, that is its, that is to me its greatest shame that it carries. But I actually thought that the way Leighton Meester played these person, shades of a personality that turned into like their, their darkest and most corrosive form actually felt very, it felt, I felt like her instincts were great. I felt like the performance that she embodied it was actually quite good. And I was like, you know what? This actually feels to me like a very realistic, in the way that Jennifer Jason Lee was so effective for what she was doing in Single White Female, so too did Leighton Meester actually feel like a really good, really good embodiment of the toxic female friendship antagonist. I, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by this, by her performance, actually. I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't agree more because I think it is actually Leighton Meester that allows this film to break free of the confines of, of something that is just a, a regurgitation of shaming mental mm -hmm. health. And yes. this is why. Yes. Uh, and this is, I, I think what I couldn't get over in 2011 when this came out was the, was the mental illness shaming. I know it wasn't mm -hmm. like in vogue yet, but as somebody who like, look, I, I, anybody who's seen the quiet room mm -hmm. has seen my autobiography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I went through a lot of psychiatric mm -hmm. facilities, like a lot of young queer people who mm -hmm. were suicidal and who had problems um, that are being depicted in this film as possibly villainous. Right. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's the way they're being received by the two lead characters that we're following. Um, and so when I saw that, I felt alienated and I was like, fuck this movie. Totally. Completely. <laughs> I am not on board. I do have to say in a 2020 lens, and this is pro and I do I do not wish to be an apologist. I want to acknowledge yeah. off the bat, this did not handle that well. Mm -hmm. I will say this. The lead in this character that I am rooting for mm -hmm. is absolutely Rebecca, Leighton Meester's character. Yep, I'm with you. And I am not rooting for the others in the film, especially Cam's character, who is the boring white boyfriend. And when Cam and uh and Sarah find that bottle of pills and look at it. Yeah. It's supposed to be something that treats like uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Yeah. Here's what's up. That n none of the things about Rebecca, mm -hmm. about who she are, is, are explained in side effects of those. No. Like, are the, none of those things check either of those boxes. <laughs> what Rebecca is, mm -hmm. is a villain with mm -hmm. a stalking problem that yes. is not whatever those like that'd be like somebody coming into my cabinet and like being like oh Truvada yeah I guess he this guy must be crazy yeah it's like yeah. girl you just looked at her pills I mean yeah. <laughs> we're all on meds for shit you don't know <laughs> I mean that'd be like picking up an antibiotic and being yeah. like did she take this maybe she has a bacteria yeah like we don't there is actually absolutely in this movie more than any zero connection to that pills moment and the villain herself I will and I think too what what in what is an, an instructive thing that this movie gives us about what a what a good boyfriend what a what a good male character because Cam Gigande has a great villain face you immediately kind of oh. think you should be rooting against Cam Gigande yes. in this he actually he plays like a supportive boyfriend he he plays like he's intended to be there as somebody who is supportive of, of Minka Kelly who is protective of her who is who's devoted to her but we are introduced to him at a frat party lining out explicitly rape culture 
I'm gonna grab a, uh, a beer. Do you want one? Oh no, thanks. I'm just having punch. <laughs> that might explain a few things. We tend to spike the punch. You spike it? Yeah. Nice. When a girl has had three cups, if we don't get her up into our room, we have to pull kids and duty for like a week. He, when he is sitting, at, like having a study afternoon with Minka, they like at this point, you know, it, it's clear that Layton's character is 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 troublesome. Uh, that there might be some issues there. There might be some attachment issues with with her and her roommate. And of course, his his read on that is like, maybe she really likes you. You know what I mean? No, I don't know what you mean. No. no. Implying that oh, she's probably is she a crazy lesbian? And so that he interjects that idea. Then later on, we have as you say the pills. And there's the moment where it's like, oh well, we found the pills. We know what that means. At every turn. Here's Cam the amoxicillin, girl. Yeah, every, at every term, Cam Gigande, Cam Gigande's character is actually reinforcing the least charitable assumptions about this person who, perhaps, if they were met with understanding, these people shouldn't be friends, Leighton and, Leighton and Minka, because that's not going to be a healthy attachment. But there could perhaps be a peaceful resolution with a person like this if you handle them in terms of empathy and not immediately fucking judging the most superficial aspects about them that you decide are full reads on their personality. Here's the hard part. And that you're, was a you, good boyfriend. That was a good boyfriend. That's a good boyfriend. Else. I do want to clarify, because earlier I, I was like, look, I threw him a little shade, and this is why, you know, right? Like, exactly what you're saying. There is a moment, though, in this film where he detects Rebecca very early on. Mm -hmm. He detects her as a threat. Yes. And as a queer person, I immediately identified with Rebecca. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have been close with straight men whose mm -hmm. girlfriends detect me as a threat. Mm -hmm. And I have been I, close with I have had I have had many like female relationships in my life where that friend did not perceive me as a threat. But because of my because of my adoration style, because of my the way I am affectionate, because of the way I am devoted, I was read as a threat by surrounding people who at times made it a point to inform the individual I had the actual friendship with that like, well, what's Jordan really about? It's like Jordan's really a panoramantic gray asexual who doesn't have some sort of hidden agenda or have time for your weird speculative bullshit, you assholes. Or, so yes, you know, I know what you mean. It, so watching that movie, it uh, like when you were saying that you I by the, that she is the villain form of you, which by the way, knowing you, I hundred percent agree. <laughs> but here's the when, thing: I I would like to think that Rebecca, had she been given the chance to discover who she is and learn self awareness, yes. would be absolutely co-hosting this podcast with me right now. That's the thing: we are talking about an eighteen-year-old. We are talking about an eighteen-year-old who has not had a chance and. You know, spoiler, will not have a chance to become a realized 35-year-old. And this could have just been a really difficult run in her life with parents who loved her but didn't who know it, know what to do with her and hadn't really found her people yet and was coming of age at a time where we weren't really having open discussions about mental health challenges and destigmatizing them. So really, right now, that character, if she could find her people in college and have a community on the internet that could have supported her through these challenges. So let's say that you could look at Rebecca, the character of Rebecca, through the lens of not mental illness, but mm -hmm. say you can see her as a stalker. Yeah. What this movie does is it actually sets up those unhealthy attachments in a really, in a very realistic way. Mm -hmm. The moment, um, the moment that uh, the way that she conditions mm -hmm. Sarah 
to to approve of her behavior yes, as an, and then point. uses that as an invitation to continue mm-hmm. is something that I feel like while single white female did really well in the first half, it kind of lost as the movie progressed. Mm-hmm. The the roommate hangs on to that. I think and you're right. It, yeah. It yes and. Uh, it, the second thing about what she does that's interesting is when she gets to the point where uh, she takes uh, – because in something like Single White Female, we have no real backstory into her life. In mm-hmm. The Roommate, she takes her home. And yes. she goes up and shows Sarah off to this group of girls who seem afraid of her. Mm-hmm. And uh, One of them she... being, mind you, crucially Nina Dobrev. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happens when she does that? Nina Nina Debrev like casts her eyes downward and looks terrified and Leighton looks over her and there's clearly like a previous attachment there and we are kind of led there's an implication especially since the aesthetic like similarity between Minka and Nina that this is her this is Nina Debrev was the high school version of what her college roommate is now and so we're seeing the sort of antecedent of her relationship with Minka Kelly in Nina Debrev and Nina Debrev delivers the the cutting line. She delivers the cutting barb to Leighton at that moment. Whereas Leighton's walking away, Nina walks up to her and just goes, Rebecca. We were never friends. Whoa. It is. I actually, my heart hurts when I watch that part in the, it, in the movie. I think that the queer person in me mm-hmm. sees that and hurts because hurts. I have had people deny mm-hmm. what our relationship is mm-hmm. or meant to them or what it meant to me is something different. Yeah. Um, especially when we're younger and we're discovering our identities. We attach to people differently yeah. than straight people do. Yes. Because we have a different, we do have a different set of, not agenda, but we just have a different wiring. We have a different you wiring know, and there is there is there has to be from the outset because you're you have to get creative about how you can have intimacy in your life because maybe yes. certain kinds of intimacy that feel natural to you, even if that doesn't go to the point of having sex with people, like in the case of me, a kind of intimacy and closeness that feels natural to you in in the same sex, in in the same gender isn't something that occurs to perhaps your more heteronormative friends. But because we're only taught to see things in terms of binary, sexual, non-sexual, straight, gay, like this is, and and intimacy is for romantic partnerships and then being just friends with somebody means that there is a stopping point on the kind of closeness and and, an exchange of like, you know, love and affection and the the freedom the, the sort of freeness of boundaries between you is something much more pliable when when you're growing up queer because you have to find the ways to act on the feelings that you have and fulfill the love that you need without being able to work within the parameters of heterosexual normative relationships to satisfy you because they're just not available to you. Like that that answer is not available to your question. So you have to find that chosen family way of bringing the, com- the correct amount of love into your life that you need that makes you feel nourished. And when you're, you know, a fucking teen in the 2000s, Maybe you just, and, and you you have some issues, maybe you go a little too hard at the person who's an object of your affection, but they don't have the language or the tools around them to be able to understand how you're coming at them. And so it feels like a bad thing based on the description of how relationships are supposed to work that we have just been inculcated with our entire lives in our personal relationships and our parents' relationships and in pop culture. 2011 me was watching that and I felt it. I felt seen and I didn't like feeling seen. Yeah. I felt I felt hurt both for her and for myself. Mm-hmm. And 
That said, 2020 me watching it, I have had an experience with somebody who uh, who imagined a relationship that wasn't there, and it was scary. Mm-hmm. And I and I have had a moment where it's like we have not met. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we were not friends. We were not in a relationship. Right. And um and having and and having a history and finding out that hey that person had a past where yeah. this has happened before. Um, people who have these sorts of problems mm-hmm. um, and, and have to work on those sorts of problems mm-hmm. really do show that pattern. Uh, she wouldn't be the first. Exactly. And so watching it this time, I was like, holy shit, their commitment to the actual reality of what it's like to have a person like this in your mm-hmm. life is actually better than the bulk of the 80s and 90s uh, mm-hmm. erotic thrillers that we got. Yeah, and that's a good my la- the last part of it, which I totally forgot, you might remember, Jordan, because I said in the chat, I was like, Ugh, Irene, let's let's set up who Irene is. So Irene is the is the older, fabulous friend of Minka Kelly's. And there is a hilariously stupid, like, white people aside in this movie where Minka is recounting a night uh, that she's just had out, had out on the town with a friend of hers. And she got ditched by Ali Machalka, so she was left to her own devices, yada, yada, yada. And she's recounting this, and Irene tells her, she's like, Sarah, you can't just go walking around downtown in L.A. by yourself. This is not Des Moines. It's like okay, let's let's calm down while we criminalize downtown Los Angeles in 2011, ma'am. But the crucial part, the part we love about Irene, is that Irene is at the very least a queer woman and is possibly specifically a lesbian. Because we see on her Frienders profile, which is the ingenious Facebook substitute social media site in the roommate Frienders, uh, we see uh, Minka and Leighton looking up Irene on Frienders together. And Leighton remarks, like, Irene really likes the girls. And Minka, the character, I like how they handle just goes, Always has. And it's like, oh, okay. We're just going to put that there. She's like, yes, bitch, I'm going to deny a a decade-long tradition of making the queer person a joke. I mean, not not decade-long. It's actually, like, the entire history. But let's talk, like, like the aughts specifically could not handle queer characters well. The roommate? Yeah. She's a normal character. Yeah, like, the, the least... Because what you have, like, a a problematic, a troublesome thing to sort of pick through about the toxic female friendship classification of movies is that you have the vilifying of queerness because you have this one woman who is either lusting after or, like, passionately pursuing because she sees the other woman as, like, a sister substitute. She wants to consume her. She wants to be her. She wants to replace her. She wants them to live together forever with only the two of them. The, there is... A queerness utilized in Leighton's character to seduce Irene in a club scene. But what I, A, it's a hot scene. They're connecting over a sink and Irene has been making eyes at Leighton's character and she offers her, perhaps she would like to use some of her caffeinated cinnamon lip gloss. And in a tremendous moment of sexual tension, Leighton like draws closer to her, like puts her hand around Irene's hand holding the lip gloss and just like ever so slowly goes in for the kiss. And the character of questionable genuine queerness in in the sense of Leighton's, who might just be putting on to seduce Irene and put her in a compromising position, the character who is actually queer, who has always been into girls, she is not... She is not coded as bad because of that queerness. She is taken nope. advantage of. She is preyed upon by somebody who is exploiting that in her. But it is not actually something 
that leads to her undoing, as I erroneously implied when we were watching The Roommate for movie night. You were like, I can't handle this if Irene's going to die. And I was like, oh, unfortunately, I don't think she makes it to the end. And I just straight up didn't remember and had completed the memory in my mind that she died because, of course, why wouldn't she? And yet. I did. Same. She is in in my grit. So obviously, like, I track every fucking queer character in any movie ever. And whether or not they die, I have a fucking spreadsheet. Yeah. And in my (laughs) spreadsheet, I erroneously listed the roommate and Irene is dying because I thought she had to because she is Mm -hmm. she is a huge part of the climax. But to, to reasons to stand Irene. And because and this is the thing because out of everybody in this movie, Irene is actually the person with the mo- with the highest moral standing, in my opinion. Irene goes out, and when she gets seduced by Leighton, you know what she says? Because Leighton's like, "Well, unfortunately, like you can't go back to my place. I have roommate." Yeah. She's like, "Listen, mm-hmm. I have my own place. It's right down the street, and I don't have a roommate. <laughs> this is a woman who makes money. She has her own place. Yep. She's gonna take you home, and she is gonna be mom." She is- <laughs> And she's got a she wears the Britney Spears hat better than anybody else in this movie. It's true. The Minka the, the Trilby is doing a lot of work on Minka's head. They didn't they they sized the hat wrong for her because really it's did. sitting right squarely on top of her head with no room to shade down and do like the half eye cover thing, which is if, even if you're not gonna wear the Trilby that way, you need to have that option to exercise it because you that's part the of the look. And it's Irene like you... is doing it right. And as Leighton also wears the trilby correctly. She does. Everybody's wearing it correctly except for our lead, Minka, yeah. who wears it like when you give a hat to a character in Animal Crossing. <laughs> it just... <laughs> it, they just put it right on the top. Right on the top. Right on the top of the head. With, like, her beautiful, like, tussled hair pouring out from under it. It's like, oh, my God, there's so much to love about your look right now. And no, and none of it is happening in this hat. None of it is following through in the hat. And you just take it down and let the hair cascade. Let us see all of Minka Kelly. What we have to talk about before we... because we're Because here's what what's happening, and I can feel it. Because we're going to talk about this final <laughs> scene, and then it's going to be done. And then... What we will have done is the criminal act of leaving the Billy Zane moment out of this. You're right. And and the way that it parallels um, the Irene introduction is important. Okay. Because Leighton seduces, a la the fan in 1980. Yes. Um, seduces a character at a gay bar, right? Mm-hmm. To to go bring back and and victimize. Yeah, because uh, Irene is Irene is the biggest actionable threat, really to take Minka out of Leighton's life because Irene has offered like, oh, I'm out of town all the time. Why don't you just come live in my apartment? So she's an active threat to taking Minka out of her life. And that is why Leighton gets her in her crosshairs. Because she's a good friend. Uh Uh-huh. Now, opposed to that is Billy Zane, her her weird teacher, Mm -hmm. because he wants to like, you know, uh, Devil Wears Prada them (laughs) in Paris. And so he's like, so she goes and like seduces him in a different way. Yeah, Leighton, and I think Leighton seduces Billy Zane after like he she, has after he has absolutely ab- absolutely assaulted Minka Kelly. He's like insinuated, yep. "I'll take you to Paris with me. You've got a lot of great potential. You don't just like you don't just know fashion. You've got style." And then he leans in and kisses her, and Minka flees and goes to tell her roommate Leighton. And then you know what? You know what Leighton's going to do? And again, this is why she's the villain edit of me. She sets her sights squarely on vengeance immediately and is like, I'm going to do something to protect my fucking person. You don't have to do this. I'll get off the Okay, come on. I'll pay for it. All right, I'll pay for that. Yes, you will. 
So when we look at single white female, mm-hmm. which I think, which has this element where it's the boss that harasses her, mm-hmm. and um, and it's a really sad. She comforts her. She's there for her. Yeah. Uh, not Layton. She. I mean, yes, yeah, she's there for her, but Layton actually goes and just fixes it. Yeah. So she Layton she's like, it. oh, did this person hurt you? I'm gonna go there, and she's like, and not only mm-hmm. does she allow like she lets it go far enough that he shows that he's a creep it's not just totally taken out of context then she entraps him uh keeps the evidence and instead of leaving him being like uh don't fuck with this person or i will tell yeah she just immediately tells she straight up she just straight goes to the administration she fucking ruins him and the next time deserves yeah the next time minka's in class uh, she has a substitute teacher because Billy Zane's character has been put on leave. And then the rumors are going around that he, as, as Minka tells Leighton, like, yeah, I guess he was like hitting on another girl. And it's like, yeah, well, I fucked his shit up and you won't have to worry about him anymore. And there are certain, there, you know, as a character like this does and why we can never really leave them behind, you have to play this character. You have to play the obsessed character such that the audience still roots for them. Yep. Because you can't, you can't make them not fun. You can't make them so unsympathetic that you're not kind of with them, and you don't want to see the next fucked up thing that they're gonna do. Um, there, are, like, there are moments. The reason Ali Bachalka gets her belly button ring ripped out of her body is because she left Minka to her own devices in some club in downtown LA, and Leighton was like, "How dare you leave her alone and in danger like that? I'm gonna fucking hurt you." And also, yep. I don't want you to take any time away from her by hanging out with her because she's all mine. That's not good. But so she she gets that vengeance. She takes out Billy Zane's character and ends his career, basically. Yep. And then in my actual favorite moment of Leighton Meester's choices in this movie, Sing it. it is there is a actually tremendous moment where Sarah's fully committed to the darkness at this point. Uh, Leighton's fully committed to the darkness at this point. She pulls up in her very expensive Porsche to the gas station because her family's super rich. And the gas station attendant is immediately a a sex pest. He is immediately hitting on her. He's immediately bad news. He's touching her. Mm -hmm. He's like trying to, like he's hitting on her. So in response, Leighton does the genius move of just pulling the, once she's done topping off her car, she pulls out the hose and just starts spraying this fucking guy with gas. And he like, she's soaking him down and he's like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Then she pulls up the hose again and she sprays him fully in the face. And when he starts coming at her and he goes, you bitch, there is a tremendous moment, a a tremendous series of directorial choices in cinematography execution where we cut quickly to Leighton's hand where she's holding a Zippo. She flicks on the lighter, camera pulls back. We just see Leighton take like a half step toward the gas station attendant and she kind of tilts her head to the side and like opens up her hand to flash the lighter and the guy starts backing away like, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's where you get that, I'm going to say the iconic look from the roommate of Leighton holding up that lighter in front of her face and that guy runs away because she has just threatened to burn this man alive for hitting on her, for for attempting to assault her. Yep. And then as he runs away, she very dryly like closes the lighter and just goes, pussy. Bitch, <laughs> listen. If listen. this was post Me Too, that would be the trailer. Listen. They wouldn't run anything else from the movie. They would run that scene. Oh, God. And we would show up. <laughs> and Leighton 
does it so well. She does it so well. That scene, I'll put that scene up against the best of whatever came out of the 2000s, the defensibly, objectively best of whatever came out of the 2000s. That is a highlight moment in the annals of toxic female friendship, horror, obsessive women character movies. Just that, yep. oh God, pussy. Like she's, she's pissed at him for being a creepy sex predator. And she also deeply does not respect him for just fucking running away. In the words of Allie and AJ's 2019 single, Church. Church. I need a little me. church. Take me. Yeah. <laughs> take me. <laughs> they Take me there, Leighton. Leighton took us there. And I, I think oh. that in what is so, what helps reframe that opening with the mm-hmm. boyfriend are those two moments. The yeah. Billy Zane thing and the gas station thing. This movie is is dissecting patriarchy. <laughs> it I is putting it you. out on a fucking slab and being like, here are the pieces one by one. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you described Cam's opening, this is not a metaphor. Cam is actually deconstructing what's happening at that party yeah. beat by beat. He's and, like, and oh, wow, a- I'm, I'm taking a girl home from a frat party. Like, my whole job is to keep girls in the frat. Like, I'm going to get disowned. Like, he meets Mika Kelly because she's been drinking too much. And he offers to not give her more alcohol. He's like, wow, I'm really, like, bailing on the bro code here, not plying you with more booze. It's like. The, the fact that I'm even arguing this right now is crazy. But I do feel like this is a very feminist, very <laughs> pro-queer film. And <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the convinced. Pro- the pro-queer moment comes in with Irene at the end. Because and then, yes, this brings us to the all-important finale. In the finale, Irene is tied to a bed, and Sarah, our hero, has to fight for her. Yeah. And and Sarah, well, Sarah doesn't have to, because let's be real. We have seen a history of movies where straight characters mm-hmm. don't fight for their gay friend. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. What's what's at stake and here? And the gay Sarah is could... expressly sacrificed to save the straight. Yep. And and to save the story, quite frankly, because usually, yeah. fuck, that's all they got going for it. Yeah, that's And in it. this case, in this case, Sarah can leave. Sarah yeah, can actually right. turn around and go. Mm-hmm. And she will be fine. She can call the police. But what is at stake is her friend. Is Irene, yeah. Irene living is a huge momentous thing mm-hmm. that we we do not give this film enough credit for. Irene's life hanging in the balance is the catalyst for the entire big finale, which includes an incredible brawl between Minka Kelly and Leighton Meester throughout yes. this apartment. They borrowed the box cutter from Jennifer and Needy. That's right. They brought it right over to this finale scene. <laughs> they are going to make half-inch cuts all over your body. Yep, yep. It's for cutting boxes, really. And, oh, my favorite, though, I do love when Minka goes right out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the thing about watching this movie. Like, I I saw this in theaters. It was packed. Go Way to go, San Francisco. It was a packed theater opening weekend. And at a certain point, the crowd so fully turned on Minka Kelly... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I think they just saw her as enabling her own doom at this point. It was like, well, what did you think was going to happen? They had so turned against Mika Kelly and were like pro-Leighton Meester 
that by the time she's getting her ass kicked in this final scene and just goes right out the window, her getting pitched out the window and holding on for dear life, my theater erupted in applause. Uh, People were practically about ready to start high-fiving each other because I think they thought that Leighton was really going to pull this one off. That's why they had to have Leighton put that kitten in a dryer. If she didn't kill a cat... You're right. (laughs) She would have been the hero. You're right. You're right about that. She had to commit something so egregious that we she had to lose us in some way and but it was one of the best communal viewing experiences i have ever had watching the roommate in the theater (laughs) that sounds like the perfect and possibly like the only way to watch it (laughs) (laughs) but yes we are in this scene where irene is tied to her bed and layton is like i'm gonna kill this bitch and minka has Mm. to like like you said she could either run or she can try and save her And so the fight ensues when she tries to save her friend and it becomes two skinny, beautiful brunettes just beating the absolute tar out of each other in Mm -hmm. and around, in and throughout this apartment. And it's usually hard for me to watch action scenes because I find them so dull. But (laughs) this action scene was so exciting because it was high drama. It was. It, it absolutely. was absolutely like, because and 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 I also this speaks to the talent of the director. They keep cutting to uh, especially right at the end. Mm-hmm. They keep cutting to Rebecca Layton's mm-hmm. character and how wounded she is. She's so sad by every single step that Sarah takes against her. Yeah, because she is so shocked mm-hmm. that Sarah wasn't having the same experience she was having. Yes. And I think that's what puts this a league ahead of almost every obsession thriller I've ever seen. Listen to me. All I ever wanted was to be your friend. I am your friend. No, you're not. No, you're not. We're here because you betrayed me. It's that finale. And I think that underscores what I think the, you know, there's the the, the mental health stuff, which is an aberration and very indicative of the time. Like, yeah. we cannot excuse it, but it is indicative of the Absolutely time. Absolutely not. What the... I think the worst single choice this movie makes actually is Minka's character deploying the callback line. You were never my friend. Because that's not true. It's not actually true. Like, when, like, the, the fight resolves by, like, Minka taking the box cutter and stabbing, stabbing Leighton in the back. And Leighton collapses down. Never mind that that blade was not out enough to have penetrated so far as to kill Leighton. It would have wounded her, but she would not have died from that single stab. You have Leighton collapses to the ground looking, again, so hurt at every move taken against her, even if even if at this point Mika's working fully in self-defense to not die and have her friend not die. You right. see the pain in her eyes as she's on the floor. And even in that moment, even after she has said to her, we were never friends, which is truly the thing that severs. That is the Jennifer's body moment of taking off the BFF necklace and, right. and Jennifer giving up. That is what that moment is. She still, because Minka's character has tried to have a good heart as best she can about this girl the entire time in the movie. She has like, even if tepidly kind of defended her against being assailed by other people. And like, there's a sort of like, the killer always comes back moment where Leighton reacts and then Minka recoils. There is that recognition of like, ultimately you are a sad character. And it is, I wish I could just delete that one line. We were never friends. Because it's not a yes bitch moment. You didn't need to do that. You didn't so need here's to do the, that. Here's the neon demon of it all. Yeah. Now, I think this is unintentional. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about with neon demon and anybody who listens to this, will yes. I'm sure hear it again and again. Again and again. Uh, 
Neon Demon was was feminist in all of these ways by accident. Yes. It was um, feminist as a result of its misogyny being so yes. effectively conveyed that the violence of misogyny was perfectly illustrated. What happens in this ending when uh, Minka's character delivers that line and we see that hurt mm-hmm. in, in Rebecca's eyes and then she goes down, we cannot side with her after this. Agreed. And there is a post scene... Uh, He's helping her move a bed out into the hallway, which first off, no, <laughs> you can't just you can't just leave a bed in your dorm hallway. But yeah. that's fine. Who's gonna handle that? You're gonna get fined. Yeah. But also, two, you want you want to share that extra long with your boyfriend? Have you seen Camp's muscles? Three. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, it does feel like in that moment. For me, as a queer person, mm-hmm. I recognize. The moving on of a relationship that was toxic because mm-hmm. the other person refused to acknowledge the part of themselves that was participating. Yeah. Minka's denial that yeah. they were ever friends. Yeah. When we've just seen an entire movie about friendship and ways that she benefited from that friendship. Yeah. And while they didn't do things the same way. And ways that they she protected did... that friendship from people who did try to minimize it. And yes. being like, no, 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 no. Like, hey, that's that's being too hard. It's okay. Like, she did she did provide somewhat of a defense for this person, even when she knew this was an unhealthy relationship in her life because she wanted to protect the feelings of this person to a point. Her taking that bed and putting it out into the hallway, to me, is the by erasure, mm. the experience of by erasure in queer and straight friendships. Mm. When something goes a little bit over the line... And it's like, you know what? Mm-hmm, <laughs> this mm-hmm. is out. Yeah. I, never shove again. Shove that bed into the hallway. Me and my boyfriend are going to ride into the sunset. Yeah. And I and I and I, I don't think that's what the movie was intentionally doing. Mm-hmm. That's what I got out of it. Mm-hmm. And having watched Minka's denial throughout mm-hmm. the film to the point of going to a tattoo parlor and not realizing, like waiting for your friend while she gets a matching tattoo yeah. and not realizing that's what's going on. Minka chose to have those blinders on at specific moments in the film. And I think that's why denies. my theater turned against her because there were certain moments where it's like, okay, well, girl, you are creating a, you are creating a permissive environment now where you are, you are sort of an agent of your own self-destruction. And so that's why in the horror context, she lost the audience in a way. And the exactly. audience was fully with Leighton Meester. But if you watch this through a clear a queer lens, you can both enjoy and relish in the mm-hmm. victories of Leighton's character and also the ways in which Minka's character isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is she's not enough. Mm-hmm. And that ending is not a happy ending. No, no. I don't think the ending is a happy ending. And and I think too that for for a movie where I do I am sympathetic to Minka's character. Um, for most of it, and I do actually appreciate the way that she interacts with Leighton's character. Um, I do, it, it, it just, it doesn't undo the movie that comes before it for me, but it was just like, oh, you didn't need to do that. Like, you didn't need to minimize that last thing. You could have just had the mutual understanding that because this is a horror movie, it's going to end with somebody dying, and that this and I- is the end, and so there, but because we know this is the end, we don't need to invalidate everything that has come before with a lie. Well, and that has to that has to do with mutuality. So I hope that I'm not entirely flattening Minka's character. I just think she didn't do enough, but yeah. she did for the first from almost the entire movie. She yeah. did operate as a friend. Yes, and and this is my opinion about straight relationships. But she did put up blinders in certain areas that other people were picking up on. Yeah, yeah. But I uh, but I agree with you. I don't think this is just hot girl sympathy. I think you have a very valid point, and also Thank that you. is what nuances the roommate above something like single white female. This actually puts it, again, I feel like a click above because these characters have a legitimate friendship. It's beyond just the opening. 
And I think too that a big point of doing this podcast and a big thing that makes me so happy to be having these discussions is we get so hung up in the circular process of talking about classics and the things that came first and the things that came before so much. And I don't, I don't wish to not participate in that because those movies do not deserve it. Like, you know, Hitchcock classics and, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, is while great works of craft, these movies are still rooted in the times that they were made movies from the 1960s, movies from the 1970s, their politics are behind the things that the, the ways in which they came into the world, the people who were allowed to make them is dated in many mm-hmm. ways. And so I don't wish to continue talking about the things that came first. I would like to transfer my conversational energy to the things that have built upon mastery and are now with the tools that we have in a present day context, context of conversation and discourse and examining things with language that we didn't have before readily available about sexism and racism and misogyny. I would like to talk about the movies that built upon the mastery and are doing things better than even a movie from 1960 could have done in its in its narrative intention because we simply didn't have the tools at the time. So yes, something may something is great that comes first and, and pioneering cinema is wonderful. But like in the context of queer cinema, especially, I don't want to talk necessarily, I don't need to be the person talking about like the queer analogy of something like the creature from the Black Lagoon when I don't need to talk about queer coding when I have queer representation that I can just talk about as readily. Like my monsters don't need to be in the closet anymore. And so to talk about something like The Roommate, it, it advances from what single white female did so well, but adds things in a 21st century way that do make it for me a more enjoyable work to experience. By ending the conversation in a place that of other people's choosing, mm-hmm. um, we erase our participation in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm ready to talk about The Roommate for what it is, which is building upon mm-hmm. a tradition that I really enjoy. <laughs> yep. And I, I think we have made, I think we have made an incredibly strong case for The Roommate as an Austerion selection. Yeah, good luck cutting this down, girl, because <laughs> <laughs> this for, conversation is important. For everything that this movie represents about the 2000s and for everything that it tells us about the 2000s coming to an end. Yes. I think that is such an, a, a, a unique position through which to fulfill our mandate on this podcast. And we, we've done it. Friend, where can I find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-R-C-R-U. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cruciola, where I will be posting these episodes, uh, where I am finally starting to post episodes of a simple podcast and, uh, you know, find writings and such. And you can find, and certainly, uh, where can we find you at on Twitter, Sam, where hopefully you will be interacting with me and a lot of GIFs. Oh, you will see an endless supply at Sam Weinman. <laughs> or you could just like open up Spotify and type in Allie and AJ and then scroll <laughs> down and click anything, any album that like has Take Me Away. And Sam will appear, actually. Yeah, no, you, you'll hear my voice. <laughs> 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 that's, that's me singing back up. So thank you guys so much for joining for another episode of Odds Tyrion. I hope that you really got I mean, I hope we've set a high bar for the level of contextual, uh, and textual and metatextual analysis that we bring to the table on Odds Tyrion, but I hope we even surprised you with what we brought to the table for The Roommate today. Take me, girl. <laughs> <laughs>